Welcome to the MCG Podcast Radio Network. Today is Monday, December 17th, 2018. My name is Snapper Plone. I'm a digital marketing manager with MCG Health in Seattle, Washington. And today I'm joined by Dr. Chris Kurtz. He is a physician editor here at MCG who helps write and edit our ambulatory care content volume. So thank you for speaking with us, Dr. Kurtz. Would you mind giving our listeners some background on your medical experience and how you came to be a physician editor at MCG? Yeah, so so my training, I'm an internal medicine trained uh, physician, uh, and I, prior to coming to MCG, I worked as a hospitalist in the VA system for almost 15 years. So as a hospitalist, I did not have a clinic. I did not have any long-term continuity with patients, but I took care of patients while they were in the hospital. And I was fortunate to work in a teaching hospital, so I also was teaching uh, house staff and medical students. And I joined MCG uh, two years ago, at the beginning of 2016, and I am one of the editors on the ambulatory care uh, guideline. And for those people who are not as familiar with palliative care, can you talk a little bit about what it is and its history and maybe how it differs from hospice care? Sure, happy to. So palliative care started around the end of uh, World War II, uh, and it started in in the United Kingdom. Uh, there was a nurse, her name was Cicely Saunders, uh, and she worked during the war as a nurse, and then after the war, she was an oncologic social worker. And she collected narratives that um, district nurses throughout the United Kingdom uh, made when they took care of their patients that were suffering um, at home at the end of life. So most of these patients had cancer, they were dying at home. Um, And Cicely Saunders helped develop a regimen of medications to relieve the suffering of patients at the end of their life. And over about 10 years, she helped collect information uh, that showed a gap in the National Health Service. uh, And she was able to persuade others in the National Health Service about the importance of -of end-of-life care. Uh, So in 1967, she helped open the first hospice in London. That was St. Christopher's. Um, And then she and others in the UK proceeded to disseminate that research and experiences worldwide. So in 1987, so 20 years after that first hospice uh, opened in London, palliative care became a recognized specialty in the UK and Australia and in New Zealand. Uh, And in the US, uh, hospice and palliative care was not recognized as a distinct specialty uh, by the American Board of Medical Specialties until 2006. Uh, So just over 10 years ago now. Um, And still, there remains a lot of confusion, I think, about the differences between palliative care and hospice. And and this is not only among the public. I think this also is among practitioners as well. Um, And really, there's two big differences between palliative care and hospice. So the first difference is that palliative care, if you use it appropriately, is actually applicable early in the course of your illness. So you, you you can get palliative care services as early as diagnosis. Um, And you compare that to hospice, which I think people are much more familiar with, but that hospice is really intended for patients with a life expectancy of six months or less. Um, And the second big difference between palliative care and hospice is that palliative care services can be administered concurrently with active treatments that are meant to prolong life. And that's very different than hospice, which generally is reserved for patients who agree to forego active therapy of their underlying disease. So hospice is more when you're done getting treatment and you just want to control symptoms. 
So what types of patients actually need palliative care? Yeah, so any patient that has a potentially uh, terminal illness can benefit from palliative care services. And most of the time we think of that as being cancer, but there are a lot of other illnesses that are also good candidates. So heart disease, lung disease, dementia, any patient with any of those diseases is a candidate for palliative care. What would you say are some of the major challenges today for health plans and healthcare providers when it comes to the practice of palliative care? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of challenges uh, when it comes to uh, implementation of effective palliative care. So from the health plan perspective, there's a lack of, of guidance about best practices of palliative care. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but there is a shortage of high quality studies that help guide us toward what those best practices are. Uh, the good news is there's more and more research being done on this topic all the time. Um, and we're actually seeing more and more guidance from various subspecialties about palliative care. Um, so, but at this point, we, we're kind of limited on, on, on the evidence that we have to help guide payers. And then the other problem for health plans is that there's a shortage of practitioners trained in palliative care. So right now, uh, I think in the United States, we graduate around 350 practitioners a year that are specialized in palliative care. And we already have a requirement uh, of about five to 600 per year. So we're already behind the eight ball in terms of, of having people trained to deliver palliative care. Um, and then for providers, there's a lot of um, barriers to practicing effective palliative care. Um, up until really within the last decade, um, medical school education on palliative care has been absent or minimal. When I was in school, and that was about 20 years ago, I did not receive any dedicated education on palliative care, uh, and I had very limited experience treating patients at the end of their life. Now, fortunately, this too has changed. Many teaching hospitals now have dedicated faculty for palliative care. Most house staff are required to do a palliative care and hospice rotation while they're in residency. So just education is improving, and that's, that's happened fairly quickly. I've seen it in my career. But that being said, there's still a lot of other physician barriers that I think are related to lack of education, lack of, ex a lack of experience. There's still a lot of physicians, and I've worked with many of them, that they're reluctant to, to offer their patients palliative care services. And there's reasons for this. I, I think some of them feel that they're abandoning their patients, that they're admitting failure, that they're, that they're telling patients and their families that they're giving up on them. And I think it's a lack of experience. A lot of physicians simply don't feel comfortable having the conversation with their patients. And, you know, if you think about it, it, it's not the easiest conversation to have, and it's really not easy if you never had training on how to approach this conversation. So I think the default for a lot of, of the docs that I've worked with through my career is they just don't bring it up at all. And obviously not talking about it with the patient and their families is detrimental to them. And then there's other patient-related issues that, that are barriers. You know, we've, we've talked about already the subtle difference between palliative care and hospice. And I think that the medical community uh, as a whole, we've done a poor job of communicating those differences to patients, to the public. So again, in my experience, most patients and families, they equate palliative care with hospice. 
and they equate hospice as what you do at the very end of life. So, you know, oftentimes if I would bring up palliative care, you could watch the curtain drop in the eyes of, of patients and their families because they think that I'm telling them I'm going to, you know, hook you up to a pain med drip and just let you go. And so you have to spend a pretty decent amount of time educating patients and families on what, what it is that we're talking about. And then there's other systemic barriers as well. Um, you know, in, as of 2016, a third of hospitals in the United States with 50 or more beds did not even have palliative services available. And then even if you do have the, the facilities available, you often don't use them appropriately or you underutilize them. It seems like we can't have any kind of podcast or presentation now without talking about the opioid crisis, but you know, that's another barrier. I think patient perceptions about pain meds affect palliative care. I, I found that many of my patients, you know, don't want to take opioid medication, and, and this is even if they had pain that was due to a terminal illness. Uh, and I had a lot of patients tell me that they didn't want to do that because they didn't want to get addicted. And then there's a lot of health uh, plans, physicians, pharmacies, they'll only prescribe very limited amounts of opioid medication. And, and I think, you know, in general, in terms of dealing with the opioid crisis, restricting prescribing is certainly an important component to that. But I think what ends up happening is you, you are limiting people who really benefit the most from those medications. Those are the patients that, you know, have pain from, from a terminal illness, and they would benefit the most from that. And then I think, finally, uh, another barrier is that there's a lot of health plans that don't reimburse for every palliative care service. Some, I'll actually say most, will reimburse for some, but uh, they don't offer all palliative care benefits, though most of them do offer hospice benefits. Long-winded answer to your question, Snapper. So what is the current state of evidence-based medicine as it pertains to palliative care? Have there been any new developments which might impact this area of healthcare? Can you talk about that? We're seeing more and more research, and that's a good thing. You know, if you really think about doing research on patients who are at the end of their life, it's kind of a difficult population to study for a lot of reasons. So the, the population is, is very heterogeneous. So you're dealing with patients that have diverse diagnoses and prognoses. You, you can't control for their diagnosis. And then there's still ongoing debate about the ethics of doing randomized studies with palliative care patients. So, you know, this group is, there's the ethics of can you withhold treatment from them that, that would help them? And, and withholding treatment or potentially beneficial therapy in the name of research, some would argue, is, is unethical. Now, interestingly, they actually have done studies looking at patient and family perceptions of being included in these trials at the end of life. And patients and families want to be in the studies. Uh, and and they, they feel strongly that, and I think it, it's like with a lot of other research, if you feel like you, you can benefit others, you can benefit patients that come after you, they, they really do want to be involved in that research. So, so that's good. We're going to do more studies on this patient population. And I think the lack of having these high-quality studies in, in the past it's made it hard because we don't really have standardized assessment tools for measuring the benefits of intervention. And that makes it hard to compare one study with another study. If we're not all talking about the same, you know, rating scale or uh, in, um, how we measure different interventions, it's hard to compare one study to study. 
but we've already mentioned since there's more being published, um, and actually, you know, you're asking if there's new developments, there, there actually are many subspecialty societies are starting to publish guidance for their member providers. And, and you're seeing more and more of this. So just one example, just this past year, the European Society of Oncology now includes palliative care in their breast cancer guidelines. And that includes the recommendation that patients be offered palliative care services at the time of diagnosis. And that's a, that's a big change. That's, that's something new that we've really seen in the last few years. And then finally, you know, in what I hope is a positive development, a federal advisory board recently recommended that Medicare and Medicaid develop reimbursement tables for palliative care services. And this is in addition to hospice services. And, and it's a cost-saving measure. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like if you can, if you can effectively institute palliative care early, um, it actually uh, has an economic benefit as well as benefiting the patients. So this, we'll see what comes of this recommendation from that, from that advisory board. So how would you say the MCG care guidelines help support evidence-based palliative care? And which content volumes would best serve health plans and healthcare providers if they were seeking to follow best practices? So, you know, currently we don't have guidelines specifically for palliative care, but there are recommendations and evidence that are, that are sprinkled throughout all or most of the products uh, that I think can be useful. So, you know, just a few examples. In the ambulatory care product that I help edit, there's recommendations for palliative treatments in several guidelines. So just one solid example from that, you know, the brachytherapy guideline has recommendations for palliative treatment of esophageal cancer. And a lot of the other products also mention palliative care. The behavioral health guideline includes recommendations for palliative care of patients with dementia. Chronic care guideline, a lot of them have information regarding palliative care. The inpatient and surgical care guidelines, the general recovery guidelines, they include recommendations for when to consult palliative care, when to consider palliative care. So even though there are not dedicated palliative care guidelines, they really are throughout all of, of the guidelines. And, and really, if you just search the guideline for the phrase palliative care, several hundred guidelines pop up. So it, it's, it's scattered throughout. I know there are some controversies around palliative care as a practice and whether it should be provided by regular physicians or by specialists. So can you comment on that? And can evidence-based practice provide a middle ground for both, perhaps? I, I think the controversy may, may relate to more, you know, what, what providers are comfortable with. It goes back to some of the other stuff that we talked about. I, I think that discussions about palliative care should be done by all physicians, primary care docs, subspecialists who care for patients with terminal illnesses, and, you know, that, that's oncology docs, cardiologists, pulmonologists, nephrologists, pretty much anyone. It makes sense. You know, patients and, and families tend to feel most comfortable discussing the issues with a provider that they already know, with a provider that they trust. You know, I, I certainly think ideally it should not fall to someone who is not involved in their long-term care. Uh, and I am speaking from the viewpoint of a hospitalist, so I took care of only hospitalized patients. I had almost no continuity long-term with my patients, and yet I was often the first person to ever mention palliative care or hospice to these patients. So, you know, the palliative care specialist can help with the conversation. The palliative care specialist can help coordinate care. The palliative care specialist can discuss all treatment options that are available to patients and their families, and I think the palliative care specialist is 
really a, a good resource to use if you have a particularly difficult patient and or family situation. But all that being said, I do think that this is something that all physicians should be able to talk to their patients about. And I do think that, you know, development of evidence-based guidelines can help this in a lot of ways. So, you know, we've already talked about some specialty guidelines that are now recommending early discussion about palliative care services. So, if nothing else, just having those guidelines out there helps those providers broach the subject with their patients. I mean, you can literally say, I've got guideline, practice guidelines that say, you know, one of the things that we should talk about is palliative care. It opens a way to have that discussion. Some facilities and healthcare systems are, are using evidence-based guidelines to, to help them generate automatic consults to, to the palliative care team if the patient meets a certain criteria. So, you know, for instance, uh, in many VA hospitals, if a patient is diagnosed with cancer, the palliative care service gets an automatic consult. If the patient is diagnosed with stage four or end-stage heart failure, the palliative care team gets an automatic consult. And, and I think those guidelines then help make sure that the patients who would benefit from palliative care services get the opportunity to do so. Uh, so I think that's how these guidelines can really help. With different coverage benefits from Medicare Part B and Medicaid, how can evidence-based guidance help ensure populations for those services are receiving appropriate levels of palliative care? Yeah, and I think this, this goes back to that, you know, right now we don't have lack of, we're, right now we have a lack of best practice. So, you know, if we have evidence-based guidelines, that allows us to have standardized best practices. And I think that then allows clinicians, payers, researchers, policymakers to, to all be on the same page uh, to determine which interventions improve outcomes. And I think if we know what works, it makes it easier to standardize what gets covered. And that allows all populations to get the care they deserve when they deserve it. Well, that wraps up our questions on palliative care. I do want to thank you, Dr. Kurtz, for your time and for answering all of the questions. And we do appreciate you explaining this topic to us and kind of giving us some information on where we can find palliative care support in the MCG care guidelines, as well as what we can expect maybe down the road in the future. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you about this. And, uh, you know, let me know if, if there's anything else I can do to help in the future. As a note for our listeners, MCG care guidelines and software are the gold standard in the healthcare industry, supporting care for over 200 million Americans. Eight of the largest U.S. health plans and over 1,700 hospitals use our evidence-based content and software solutions to increase efficiency of healthcare delivery and improve the patient journey. MCG also integrates with nearly all the leading EMR and utilization management platforms, and it's licensed by the government-contracted entities such as Max, RACS, and BFCCQIOs to ensure that tax dollars are being used to deliver quality care. If you'd like to learn more about us or find out more about our guidelines and our software solutions, you are welcome to visit our website at www.mcg.com, or you can call us at 1-888-464-4746. Thank you for joining us today.